Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. And welcome to another episode of EdTech Examined. Good afternoon, Chris. How's it going today? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing swell. I thought today we would reflect on the forecast we developed for 2021. So um, for those people who are not familiar with this, uh, 2021, I guess it was the January episode. We will put a link uh, in the show notes. We did a top 10 list of uh, education technology or education predictions for the 2021 year. Uh, kind of ranking from, I guess, most probable to to most out there. I think that's kind of how we we went through it. So rather than develop a brand new list from scratch, um, today we are going to go through the list, uh, see how accurate those uh, forecasts were, and then uh, adjust the list for 2022. So 2022 will be the forecast will be an adjusted forecast. I didn't think it, uh, we needed to throw this out because I'm assuming that some of these will be continuing trends. Um, some of them we may have to cross off. We may end up with the same shorter list or whatever. So I didn't have too much planned other than I thought we would go through these and uh, kind of reflect on the year and maybe see how we did. For sure. So did you want to kick off with number one? Sure. So the, the first one was that uh, there's going to be more unicorns and the uh, unicorns being companies that are valued at a, a billion dollars plus. And so um, I think that uh, prediction is still going true. Yeah. Now, does that count for companies that went public or is it privately held? Because I know that uh, both Udemy and Coursera went public last year, I believe. Yeah, I, I think for that, uh, in terms of the valuation, it doesn't matter whether they're privately held or public. Um, you know, for example, Uber previously, I mean, they, they had a multi-billion dollar valuation, but it was privately held. And, uh, you know, so they went public after the fact. And for those who are not uh, familiar with that, but basically uh, you can go and uh, have an initial public offering and get listed on the stock exchange. Uh, I think there's pros and cons to that. Um, it's uh, it's interesting. Like I look at like Dell Technologies, for example, they actually, Michael Dell took it private. And uh, still private? I believe so. But yeah, I mean, it went, it was public and then he took it private. And there, there's certain things when you're a publicly traded company, you do have to go and share all your information. Uh, and it's for your stakeholders, your shareholders. So, but yeah, I mean, uh, again, uh, I think one of the things that we, we've been talking about for the last uh, couple of years is that, um, you know, these big tech companies, Amazon, Google, uh, you know, Facebook, Apple, and so on and so forth, if they want to get up to the next trillion dollar, you know, uh, valuation in terms of market cap, they need to go in and uh, target new industries that will allow them that uh, potential. And so education is one of them. And then beyond that, there's just uh, opportunity there. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I think there's other industries like agriculture. Um, you know, there's, uh, uh, you look at clean technologies, 
uh, internet of things, healthcare. And so, I mean, these education is a, a big industry. It's a, you know, multi uh, billion, maybe even trillion dollar industry. And so uh, again, this is why there's still uh, opportunity there. Okay. Well, that's, I don't remember off the top of my, I mean, other than those two companies, I'm trying to remember if there was a particular <laughs> company we can highlight that we talked about. I don't remember. Um, but we can, we can keep, certainly keep that one on the list. What about the second one, course delivery? So you had predicted that course delivery um, would be, would go undergo a uh, permanent mutation, as you call it. So it would stay hybrid, depending on how you define hybrid, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, and I think this, uh, it's interesting. So um, uh, just this past week, uh, here at Mount Royal, so as a sessional instructor, we received our, you know, what courses are available to teach. And it looks like all the sections are face-to-face. And so um, uh, I guess maybe we underestimate. I think there is a demand for it. You know, there's a demand uh, even, you know, this uh, semester we've spent two months uh doing online delivery because of the uh, this current wave of um, uh, the coronavirus. And so now it was interesting as we returned back to campus, many students, uh, they have asked whether they could continue doing things online. And, uh, you know, uh, on my side of things, I, I've been getting less than half attendance in my courses. Uh, in terms of the ones uh, for undergrad at Mount Royal. Uh, so, um, you know, but I, yeah, it was interesting to see like all the courses next year, there's no option for online delivery. It's all just in person. So we've kind of, I, I so worldwide for higher education, would we say that there's going to be more flexibility outside of Mount Royal, which is kind of doubling down on uh, yesteryear? Well, and I mean, I, I you know what, uh, Eric, I think part of it is uh, as well, there's, uh, especially when you're demanding or there's this uh, high cost of tuition, I think the uh, having that face-to-face -face certainly helps, uh, you know, establish and validate the the cost right because you're then you're getting that experience and uh you know it's uh it's more than just uh taking a course i mean you could go and take a course anywhere um and that's why like things like uh udemy and coursera they've uh, actually seen a huge increase but um i mean i i think part of it uh, whether i probably one of the issues is just because of the uh the way that the registrar system works and you know, even it's funny because most courses, what, what do they usually do? They probably, I, I bet you, they just copy and paste the, the schedule from the previous year and then it just gets moved forward to the, the, the next year. Even I bet you the classrooms are the same and so on and so forth. And so, uh, you know, I think this is where maybe we underestimated um, uh, just how the bureaucratic process works. And, um, you know, but I... I'd like to think that there's still in terms of this permanent mutation, like, you know, anything that I created over the, these past two years, I'll still be reutilizing it in my courses and uh, maybe there will be options. I mean, uh, one thing I, I, I know in one of the courses that um, it's a multi-section it's course coordinated uh, business communications that I teach. 
and we have an online theory, theory quiz. And I think we're probably going to keep doing that where we give the students a window of time to go and complete it. Uh, it's set up through our uh, learning management system. And so there's, I think there will be still components, but yeah, I guess what, what I was hoping more so when we discussed this last year is that there would actually be the option to take courses online or in person and have a, a you know, a varied schedule uh, available. And I don't know about other universities. I'd like to hope that maybe they're a little bit more open to this and maybe it comes down to the students. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I think we, I would agree with you that I kind of assumed that universities would jump at the opportunity to expand and make more money like companies like Coursera and Udemy. And I think in the United States, smaller colleges, I guess you could say it's hybrid and so far there's more assignments in a face-to-face -face class being done online, or maybe there's more of a blended approach. Again, it depends how you define hybrid. And I realize there's some contention around that, but I've really been surprised about how many institutions have really doubled down, run away from the progress that they've made uh, learning how to teach online, which is a very different skill set. So we had it kind of partially right. Some institutions have done that, particularly in the States, but for the ones we're at, they've kind of gone in the opposite direction. So I have put partially correct. <laughs> <laughs> I think we got the unicorns <laughs> number of the number of ed tech companies we have said in previous episodes, I should backtrack um, that just the, the growth in the industry and number of startups has increased dramatically since 2020. So I think we were, we were correct about that, but partially correct for permanent mutation. Uh, our third prediction was that technology would expose some of the socioeconomic fragility. So I believe you also predicted, well, let's say the progenitor of this prediction. So can you explain to people what you meant by that? Yeah, so what I meant is that, uh, you know, just being online, uh, one of the things that I noticed, like for example, just having internet access and high speed internet access so that you can actually access uh, video conferencing and uh, other resources. The other thing is uh, webcams, especially uh, when the, the pandemic first started in 2020, the costs, there, you know, the webcams, uh, they were just sold out. And so the cost went up and, uh, you know, uh, again, how many students are going to be able to afford some of these um, various technologies and, uh, you know, equipment that you would need to go and access the courses online. And so um, one of the things that I've uh, mentioned, and we've discussed this many times, like even having your webcam on, uh, it's almost the equivalent of sitting in the front row. And, you know, for those students who actually do turn on their webcams, uh, you have uh, basically a unfair advantage maybe compared to your classmates. And so, uh, again, some of these uh, aspects, I mean, it was interesting to see this past year, I, I came across some people who were living in rural Alberta and they didn't have high speed Internet. And so in those cases, especially as I described earlier, like doing an online quiz, if your internet is spotty, what do you have to do in that situation? And so I suggested that come to campus and go to the library yeah. and access, um, you know, uh, the internet there and have maybe book a room or what have you. But uh, yeah, I mean, these, these things are definitely, I, I think this, we're probably right in, in that uh, there is additional cost and burden on, on students. Yeah, I 100% agree. And, you know, I, so I've spoken to not only my colleagues on campus and around the local community in Calgary, but I have many colleagues in the United States. I have quite a few colleagues in Europe who I still keep in contact with. You know, we, we are on a Discord randomly chat. So I don't have a study or 
statistics, although I'm sure those will come out um, about the 2021 year and, you know, uh, we'll keep an eye out for inside higher ed and things like that. But, you know, anecdotally talking to my colleagues worldwide, um, even in places like Europe, where I, th I think uh, much of the United States, I think the United States has caught up a lot on high-speed internet and Canada has generally been pretty good, except for the North, uh, to places like Europe, certainly not the density of uh, Central Asia, like South Korea, some of the fastest internet in the world, things like that. But uh, everybody has told me that they've really struggled with the amount of time they have had to spend uh, troubleshooting or making exceptions for students, not because of their fault, but because of spotty internet. They live in a more rural area. Um, and internet's expensive. Uh, I had a super deal, at least in Canadian standards. I had 150 megabits down or something. I'm with Shaw, which is a Canadian company for those who know Western Canada. And I think I would, it's like 70 bucks a month or something. Now I don't have cable. I don't have any of those things. But that that deal <laughs> went away. That was a special uh, Eric Christensen is a 15-year customer deal. And then, you know, they gave me another deal for faster internet, but it's now, you know, with taxes like $98, right? So the prices have for speeds with that infrastructure have only gone in one direction. And I think uh, the students I've spoken to are at the base tier, which is pretty slow. It's fine for browsing the web, but it's a whole different ball game when you're video conferencing and you have to have a stable connection or you have, you have to have like a, a learning management system that's kind of saving your content as you go while you take an exam. And so it's, expose the fragility of people's ability to afford that kind of internet. And I think it's also kind of exposed the fragility of uh, the systems that education, higher education is built on. I don't, I, you know, if, if you're working in a Google doc and your internet cuts out, it's instant tells you that you should stop editing. Right. Yeah. I don't know if it works that way for blackboard or canvas or any of these learning management systems there, I don't know for sure, but I suspect that they're not as robust from a infrastructure perspective. So it's kind of exposed the creakiness of the systems that we use to host courses and how fast they are and, and things like that. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, and even, uh, I think another thing uh, beyond like internet and, um, uh, even just some of the equipment, but I think probably one of the biggest underrated skills that anybody can have is video editing. And uh, I've seen this as well, where, you know, students who have access uh, to the software, to, uh, you know, having that ability to uh, edit video. I mean, imagine if you're uh, in a class where you have to do a presentation and students are preparing videos versus others that are doing it, you know, live. Uh, obviously, the person who actually put in that time and care is probably going to do much better from a, a grading perspective. Yeah, I 100% agree. Um, this is now our fourth prediction. So we said, you may have to remind me, you've re-listened to the episode a little bit more recently than I have. I've gone through it again. But we have two kind of in a row here. So this is Big Brother and Integrity. Can you remind me what we meant by that? I believe this was just in, in terms of uh, academic misconduct and, um, you know, uh, things like there was uh, that proctoring type of uh, software and, and so on and so forth, where uh, now all of a sudden you have to turn on your webcams while you're doing the test so you can verify uh, whether that student is actually writing it and, 
and uh, even just beyond that, um, uh, having certain systems to flag for plagiarism and so on. So we were, yeah, we were predicting that there would be more um, intrusive private privacy intrusive technologies used to compensate for the perceived increase in academic integrity, i.e. cheating as a result of being online, since, you know, uh, nobody wants to assign essays and mark them. They have to be, you know, exams that are easy to grade, I suppose. So I think we were correct on that. There's been a, f even at uh, our institutions, there's been many discussions about rolling out things like ProctorU, which I believe have been shut down where we are, but many institutions have adopted them and other technologies that either, if they don't watch you through a camera, uh, record your keystrokes and we, and record which applications are open at the same time um, to kind of uh, prove that you're, you know, not using your book when you're not supposed to, since you're not in a, a gym where everybody can keep an eye on you. I don't know if much to say about that. I think we were right on the technology side, the big brother side, in terms of the academic integrity. I don't do a huge amount of grading I have, from my colleagues that I've talked to who teach credit, including at library schools in the States, they have seen a dramatic increase in cheating. I don't know. Is that the case at uh, our institutions as well? Well, I, I could say maybe anecdotally, but uh, I, I think also like we've discussed this part of it is, uh, you know, uh, just your pedagogical approach. Right. And so one of the things that we do or I typically do, and uh, whether it's a course that I teach by myself or if it is course coordinated is, you know, if it, if you are going and like, for example, our business communications course, uh, the students, we let them go and, uh, you know, make it open book because in the real world, guess what? You're going to have access to everything. And so, um, yeah. and again, it was partly to do with uh, leveling the playing field because we had sections that were online. And so those students online, it's not like I'm going to be able to go and, you know, check in on what they're up to. So you put in place certain measures like uh, having uh, the timed uh, aspect and uh, at a certain time frame, and, uh, you know, varying up the, the actual test. But beyond that, you know, we allowed the students to go and, um, you know, use their textbook. And then it just becomes a little bit more challenging because really at the end of the day, if you don't know your content and you don't understand the concepts, you're probably not going to do that great, especially in a timed environment. Yeah. So depending on probably an increase, depending on uh, how you're doing assessments. So I think, I think we largely got that right. Yeah. At least anecdotally. And I've heard that there's been a lot of, um, there's been a lot of really interesting articles written about academic integrity and cheating. Uh, our fifth prediction. So we're halfway down through the list was uh, the university would have more liability over, uh, or regarding data and privacy. So this is related to the previous prediction. Um, in so far that we thought if the university is going to roll out these privacy reducing measures, then they would be on the hook for it. But, you know, I haven't actually seen much evidence of this. <laughs> so I, I, my, my, my interpretation is that we were wrong. I don't see a lot of universities being taken to court, if at all, or challenged regarding uh, student data or privacy, even on their personal devices. Uh, and I, I'm not sure what, maybe that's just uh, maybe students not fully understanding uh, 
you know, the, the policies or what have you. I mean, I know one thing here at uh, Mount Royal, um, let's say, for example, recording our uh, lectures, we do actually go and, um, you know, as part of the Freedom and Information and Privacy Act, uh, after the semester's overall, everything gets deleted and that's specified yeah. in the course outline. So I, I think certain things, I wouldn't say that we, we completely, uh, it's wrong, but there's certain things that, um, you know, the universities have had to adapt and I'm sure the legal departments are, you know, uh, thinking of some of those aspects from a liability standpoint. So are you saying we're partially correct? I think we're partially correct, but I I, I think what, uh, again, I, maybe it's like an underestimation of uh, what students are willing to go and contest and maybe they were just too busy to even go and, you know, bring up some of these issues or having yeah. a, a knowledge of the law or what have you. I am grading these as correct, partially correct and correct. So I'm assigning us points so we can okay. add it up at the very end. That sounds um, good. Uh, we said that the pass failed debate uh, would continue. Uh, so in, in many schools uh, in Canada, as well as the United States, I'm not, I'm not sure. Again, I haven't heard as much about this from Europe, from Europe, but I don't know what percentage of European schools were closed. North America seems to be, there was more closures. Um, but we, we predicted that there would be uh, a debate or increasing number of debates about pass fail. So early in the pandemic, when it kind of cut our winter semester short, we ended up giving people the option for pass fail at our institution. It's very common across North America. And we, we figured that that would happen again um, as for, for, the, for the year as things were um, kind of online, so to speak. And I think that's true. I think we've had a number of discussions, at least our institutions, uh, articles about universities offering more options for pass fail. Uh, for students who've had to, you know, pivot back to online in the middle of the semester, that's been the case for us. And so I would say that we've been correct. Uh, that hasn't gone away. Uh, that's a tool yeah. that's been brought out again, though it creates a lot of problems potentially for students too. Yeah. And I, I don't think they fully understand the ramifications of it. So yeah, here, let's say, for example, at Mount Royal, uh, I'm not sure what the, the situation is at the University of Calgary, but um, because we've been online for two months, they have rolled out the COVID pass fail again. And, you know, uh, one, uh, what I've been actually advising students is to talk to uh, their academic uh, advisors on whether they should take a, a pass or a fail um, kind of situation or this COVID pass, because you probably in most cases, especially if, uh, if the course is uh, a prerequisite for uh, a course as part of their major, you probably it would be better to take a grade of, you know, let's say C and above, as opposed to taking that COVID pass. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it can mess up your, uh, like you said, the, um, required courses for moving forward and stuff. It's not, it's well, not equivalent. Yeah. Well, it's not even about being equivalent, but they, it might not be counted towards your degree. Right? Yeah, exactly. So that's, so that, that's doesn't count for a major to graduate with that major. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so it would probably end up taking more time. And yeah, I mean, might might be better off uh, withdrawing. Actually, I found that was kind of interesting, too, is that we've extended out the withdrawal date. And so normally you would have a, a deadline prior to the end of the semester. But now it's like literally you can take it to the last day of the semester. Yes, that's true. Yeah. 
And we've kind of done that on both semesters. Well, we did that in the second because we did it in the first, right? So yeah. they had to push it forward and we pushed the start dates back. Um, our seventh prediction was that uh, was called market diversity. And the, the prediction, I believe this was our audio editor's prediction. So I wish Chris was here to, to engage with it. Uh, it was that market diversity uh, or ed tech tools, there would be more of them going into K to 12. And there'd be a kind of an increased demand for private tutoring. So were we right? Is it unknown? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, I mean, it's interesting because some of these, uh, let's say, for example, like a learning management system like uh, Desire to Learn, right, D2L, uh, I believe it's more prevalent in the K to 12. And then it came to, you know, the post-secondary. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, there's definitely kind of some overlap. Um, but an increase, like I'm thinking more, did, did K to 12, you start using Padlet more because they're online or, um, or, or just more technologies in general? I haven't, I'm not suggesting we're wrong. I just haven't seen any evidence for it, but I could yeah. be missing. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. I mean, although, uh, again, I think because we've had to go and do things online, uh, I, it seems like, I mean, my impression just with, uh, like my sister is, uh, teaches in K to 12 and, uh, you know, they've had to adapt quite a bit. I mean, they, they were using things for video conferencing where in the past they never did in terms mm -hmm. of uh, engaging with their students. And so, um, whether there's more tools for them or not, I, I think it's just more a matter of uh, they've had to do what they've had to do just to get things done in terms of teaching, right? And so uh, we're all kind of in that predicament. But yeah, I think we're probably, it's unknown whether there's a increase, but you know. We'll count it as no for now, because we don't really have an unknown. I guess we could not count it in the points, but sure. um, our eighth prediction was that uh, textbooks were gonna hang around so they wouldn't be dead. Now I wanna specify that we didn't say print or digital, we said textbooks in general. And in fact, I would make the case that not only were you correct, Chris, because this was yours, but uh, that you were super correct because I have, I monitor, uh, particularly for my liaison areas as a librarian, but just for my colleagues in general to see what open educational textbooks are being published. So if something, so one came out, for instance, uh, in, about Airbnb and tourism. And we have an ecotourism degree. So I sent it to my colleague, Joe, because I said, hey, this is a really interesting book. You may want to take a look at it. I have seen a lot of OER textbooks being published over the, over the 2021 year. And so I've seen a huge increase in digital open textbooks. Yeah, no, for sure. And even actually, I, I mentioned this to you a little while ago, like, uh, I also teach in continuing education at the University of Calgary. And um, it seems one of the things just to kind of cut down on costs for uh, students, there's a big shift now. And, uh, you know, it's funny because I, I was the potentially even one of the, the instructors that, uh, you know, suggested this because I, I had this one course where it was for economics and the publisher kept changing there yeah. uh, every year like an addition and the the textbook was really expensive so i went for an oer uh, solution but um, now it seems like they're moving everything towards oer and i would say in some cases maybe the oer isn't as um, you know uh, good as maybe a, a textbook maybe right and it depends on the subject so i wouldn't say like from a publisher standpoint um you know they they've basically you know uh, had to go and shift their uh, business and uh, now they're providing a lot more 
of those educational um, you know technologies and um, where you can go and self-assess and uh, enhance content and so i uh, yeah. you know they've had to go and combat i mean this is a market reality for them especially with the oer uh, side of things when well, especially the press books publishing platform so in alberta where we are, um, there was a initiative that a bunch of institutions signed on to that the U of A hosted a OER textbook publishing um, platform. They use an open source platform called Pressbooks. I believe Pressbooks is built on WordPress, uh, but that's used at BC campus. That's used Open Oregon. Uh, so my, many of my colleagues in the States are familiar with this. Uh, this platform has exploded in terms of digital textbooks, and you can order print on demand from uh, the university presses if they're involved, or they print very well from a photocopier or a printer if, if you want to print chapters and stuff. So I like this digital first ability to print on demand, um, multiple formats, you know, developed in EPUB so it exports really well to PDF and stuff like that. So I'm, I have seen... Um, not only an increase in books, but also some really high quality stuff and not necessarily super long textbooks. Like let's say like 90 or hundred pages, like right to the content um, and, and external links that go to open access articles or go to encyclopedias or, you know, include definitions. So they're kind of cutting out the stuff that can be hyperlinked in the book to link out um, to these other resources or they're linking to podcasts or they have embedded video. I've been really impressed with kind of the multimedia fashion of open te OER textbooks. So it's almost the pandemic has kind of given new life to a movement that was kind of stagnating, I think. Absolutely. Um, so I would say that we got that right. That's probably the one we got the most right. Are we on number nine already? Wow. Yeah, um, number, nine. number nine. So I said we would have more predatory degrees uh, so what I, <laughs> so if those of you are, 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 are familiar with predatory publishing, uh, so open access publishing are, you know, open access journals are journals that are peer reviewed, typically, uh, go through some academic review process or typically run by a university or hosted volunteer by a bunch of in people teaching and learning inquiry is a really good one. That's the one that I help do the technical management for. Um, that's what they are now predatory publications, unfortunately kind of came out of the open access stuff because they were open to everybody but they they were what we call pay to publish there was not a an honest academic critique process to get your article published you, you know it was you pay us a few thousand dollars and you would just get it published with kind of no pushback which is fraudulent right it doesn't meet the standard of peer review um some open access journals that are legitimate do have a processing charge and that's just because they don't make any money and they have to pay a copy editor and formatting and stuff so there's a legit reason you need to get funding to pay for the publication costs but they don't let you do that unless you go through the peer review process still but we have these predatory uh, journals why is that relevant well because uh we have seen uh, kind of spin-off degrees, particularly graduate degrees or certification, not so much certificates, I think at the higher level almost, um, kind of degrees where they're reaching out to students via LinkedIn. We have, uh, well, we're not going to say who it is, but we have a bunch of people who have talked to us about, hey, we, I'm reached out to, uh, a, a, a legitimate university reached out to me, said, I've already been pre-approved for this program. I mean, that's like the credit card companies, right? Like that's messed up. I don't know that I've seen an increase in predatory degrees, though. So all that said, it's true, it's a real thing, but I haven't seen a huge amount of evidence. And if somebody has evidence that 
I'm missing, please send it to our, uh, send it to us. But I don't see, I, I don't know that we were right about that. I think the, I haven't seen a great increase in the number of academic credentials by universities. I mean, I, I think the only thing that uh, maybe some of these universities, Eric, they are coming up with new, uh, you know, programs or accreditations that uh, may be uh, relevant, especially let's say with like digital transformation or, you know, some of those kind of buzzwords or what have you. And so, um, uh, you know, those are certain, certainly kind of market driven as well. Right. And so, I mean, the, uh, I think universities do have to go and uh, respond to what the, the needs of the, the current workplace and what employers are looking for. So. So we are at six or sorry, seven out of 10 uh, for being correct so far. And then our last one is more alternative credentials. So my assertion was that we would have, or I think all of our assertions is that you would see an increase in the different types of credentials offered, um, particularly micro credentials or some sort of stackable uh, credential. I know the University of Toronto has a number of micro-credentials, and we, we actually talked about that not that long ago, and some other institutions. Uh, do we think that there has been an increase in the number of alternative acc accreditations or credentials being launched, or is it more or less status quo? I would say so. I mean, I just attending, like for example, here at Mount Royal, um, uh, I attend meetings for the uh, uh, curriculum uh, committee and so on. And, uh, you know, there's always talks uh, about introducing new micro credentials, because especially once you get into industry, you know, do you want to go come back and do another degree just because some or an MBA or, or maybe an MBA or something. Right. And so there's certain things that maybe it's just like a course or two and you can get a certificate. And, uh, you know, so I think there are, um, aspects of that that are taken into account and then beyond that probably the bigger thing that uh, you know even if you look at it like first when google partnered with coursera their original um uh you know credential that they came out with i believe it was for some type of it administration or support and that was ux well it was a ux i thought it was it support or something there was multiple yeah, but at the original first one, because then they released beyond after that, they released like four other ones, including the usability. Right. And so, uh, again, uh, I mean, I, I think something like that, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, let's say, some of these bigger uh, companies like, let's say, Apple or Amazon or what have you, if they come out with more of these uh, credentials. And in, in fact, some of them, I mean, I look at like, for example, Microsoft, they partnered with the University of Calgary to offer a completely free course if you want to get an introduction into artificial intelligence machine learning uh, wow. and of when course, did they release that this past year wow. and so part of it was uh, you know uh, given some of these companies like uh, if you specifically amazon google and microsoft they have their own cloud services they have their own uh, you know uh, artificial intelligence machine learning platforms that they want to go and push out there and so microsoft obviously if they can get you in and get people to learn their platform you might have a higher propensity to go and sell that uh, uh, service to the employers and, and so i mean again maybe it's smart on their part um, well i i'm uh putting down some of the keywords that you mentioned because i don't know that i have i guess 
in terms of evaluating if we were correct on this forecast or not, I have uh, maybe a, a narrow definition of what I was looking for. So I was inclined to put incorrect, um, but it sounds like we we're partially correct. I have seen an increase in the number of micro credentials uh, launched by institutions across Canada, uh, mostly the big institutions that are already doing that. Um, I haven't seen an increase in MOOCs, massively open courses. That's been around for a long time. I think that's kind of on the decline. Um, I don't count Coursera or Udemy's offerings because they've been around forever and they already have thousands of courses. So it has to be a new type of credential, like a degree equivalent. Um, so I guess we could put it as partially correct. I, I think Eric, there's probably, there will be more, especially yeah. when, you know, I mean, I look at, uh, remember one our, our good friend, I don't know if he is our friend, but like, uh, you know, you look at Scott Galloway, I mean, he basically created his own, uh, ed tech startup where he's doing these, uh, short sprints at a fraction of what he would charge, uh, you know, his, uh, for his MBA courses. And so you get the same type of, um, you know, delivery and, you know, part of it is, uh, he, you know, you have this, um, ability to communicate with your cohort with, uh, uh, through Slack and other means you have these world-class, uh, uh, instructors and professors that are going and delivering the content and having access to them. So, you know, I, I think that there's probably going to be more of this, but, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm okay with saying that we're partially correct, uh, part marks. So we have, uh, either a seven or a 7.5, I guess the latter would be a little more generous uh, out of 10, which is not bad considering not bad. how we broadly, very broadly define these. So perhaps our listeners will take issue about our self grading. Um, but <laughs> so be it. It's not really, you know, this is, this is, if we count that we would get a higher grade of eight if we said that you know what we're doing here is a new type of credential i'm only joking uh <laughs> this is kind of a self-assessment uh so if rather than create a new forecast from scratch um some of the things like you said when you've alluded will persist into the next year so we can say we predict this will continue to happen we can leave it we can also do revisions so are there things that we i guess start that we want to eliminate from our existing list. Yeah, I mean, I, one of the ones that we, we talked about, like even just this course delivery, I mean, I wish that we would have more of this like a permanent mutation and then, you know, having, I mean, I look at uh, certain courses, uh, I don't see why we shouldn't have uh, multiple sections that are available in person online. And maybe it's something that the students have to kind of push for. Uh, that being said, chances are they probably aren't going to go and push for it. And, uh, you know, uh, at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's a matter of going and creating more of that value uh, proposition of um, being able to experience academia in person, face to face. And that's where the, the value is. Right. And so uh, but. Uh, I think even that uh, the third one, the in terms of uh, exposing the uh, socioeconomic fragility. I think that's probably going to continue. Um, yep. You know, technology is increasing at an exponential rate. And so, I, again, um, I mean, it's funny, even like the, as I mentioned to you earlier about like video editing being a, uh, one of the most underrated skills. And I mean, it's not like video editing is anything new. And we've even described in episodes previous um, some of the tools that are available. But I think it's just people are maybe a little bit, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, apprehensive about learning the, the technology. So, 
Um, I'm going to su suggest that we probably also cross off uh, as persisting. So we have, I think, unicorns, uh, ed tech companies that reach large valuations will continue. Yeah. Course delivery, we'll let that go for now. We may find out that we should have predicted it again, but we'll we'll leave it. Um, I think the like you said, we'll continue with number three as a prediction. So the technological, the socioeconomic fragility of the internet connected world will continue to be a problem uh, for at least another year, probably more. I would say that we could probably continue with uh, Big Brother and uh, platforms for monitoring students. I'm going to say we remove the privacy debate and just kind of roll that into one. There'll be yeah. more discussion about big brother tools and academic integrity. Well, we could, we could probably roll it into one. I, I think we could remove the pass fail debate. I don't, I think that's, uh, that's not like that probably couldn't be a continuing thing. We'd, well, we'd hope so. <laughs> right? yeah, but we could, hope although so. I think that there's some people, uh, there's still some, um, uh, professors that, uh, maybe like to bring this up and, uh, you know, especially, you know, those schools that have a grade curve, right? I mean, uh, should we be limiting the number of, I mean, I think we've even discussed this before, but like, uh, if you look back historically, the chances of students getting A's was probably a, a lot lower than greatinflation.com. Yeah. So, yeah. um, I don't know, in some ways, maybe the, uh, it's interesting, like this, uh, this pass fail, I mean, maybe it's, uh, it might still continue, but yeah, I don't, I think the more so it came about because of the, the pandemic. Um, what about market? I don't think we should be, I could, I'm willing to be persuaded. So the market diversity of ed tech tools, or do we going to continue with this? I think we could probably remove this, um, uh, again, it's similar to one unicorns yeah. right yeah exactly right i mean i i don't know if it's necessarily limited to um you know a lot of these technology platforms uh i mean it, we probably will see more people like whether you talk about like private tutoring or just people going and offering their own workshops and courses but there it's a there's a bit of a democratization of the technology that's uh, coming about and yeah i think it could be wrapped up with the unicorns for sure uh I, i'm gonna suggests that we keep the textbook one, but I'm going to make a revision since I believe we were correct, which is that we'll continue, or there'll be an increase in digital, particularly OER textbooks uh, that, you know, include um, multimedia. That's the trend I'm seeing. I suspect we'll see more of it. Um, on top of that, <laughs> I'm going to also say that we have one that my prediction for the next this this year is that there'll be more pressure put on educators to develop their own materials uh, with minimal support. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised at all about that. Um, I mean, even maybe an, another thing that uh, I think it's good that you brought up, like that multimedia side of things, because uh, and now even publishers are starting to realize this, uh, you know, where once they go and print that textbook, it's immediately yeah. out of date. And so what are what are these publishers doing? They're basically including and, uh, you know, with that subscription that students and instructors are paying for. 
where you basically have additional supplementary information, uh, you know, whether it's articles or video or, you know, uh, maybe it's uh, some podcast or interview or, or what have you. So I, I think that definitely is uh, still happening. So more like a living textbook. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. That, no, that's a really good one. So we have a revision next to the new one, which is our spinoff, the more the pressure to create homegrown materials. It's kind of a reversion of what universities used to be with course packs, except moving into the digital age, right? So this will be interesting. Um, what about our predatory degrees uh, prediction? Do we, do we keep that on the list? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was one of our, we started off uh, because we went in um, the really far-fetched ones to, you know, the ones that were more uh, conceivable. We could probably remove this one. I mean, who knows, maybe there'll be more people uh, trying to come up with uh, credentials. I mean, who knows, I'm not sure, or these new degrees. Well, we have, we'll continue to have that one. Um, I'm just... We'll still, we can still keep our alternative accreditations. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, right. that makes sense. I, th I thought maybe we could add one more. The, so at the end, the last one is usually the most ridiculous and we actually got it partially correct last time. So I'm inclined to really try to get it wrong. I'm just joking. I, it's that, I think we may see, uh, more, uh, institutional closures or at the very least um a shrinking of the size of some of higher educational institutions yeah no and i mean even something like this we we brought this um and discussed this in past episodes but you know scott galloway uh and he's nyu um uh, uh, professor there, teaching professor for marketing but he's uh, talked about this before where you know the prestigious ivy league schools basically will continue and flourish um, and basically all the ones after that, they're, they might not have the funds and the endowments to go and sustain themselves. And so you might see uh, a bunch of them closing up and then there might be still uh, in the lower tier, maybe there might be some of those like uh, institutions from that are like community colleges that will be okay. Yeah, exactly. And we, we can take a look at where that'll happen and where it won't happen. And that, that won't, that's not going to be across the board, I think. Um, I think the entry level institutions and the high, like he said, are the very, the most prestigious institutions are in the best shape. Yeah. It's all uh, everything so, in the middle that are kind of, uh, you know, there's nothing really distinguishing them. Are we in the middle? <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Potentially depends how you define it. It's a little bit different. We are in Canada. It's a little bit more regulated too. So that, that leaves us about seven predictions for 2022. So we'll probably come back to it. We're, we're back. We're coming to this a little bit later. We probably would have normally done this for February, but we're into it in March, uh, but we'll come back in, you know, January, February, it doesn't have to be a whole year of what we're going to see in 2022. Um, is there anything else that we want to revise or add to this list? Anything wacky that you want to predict? It doesn't have to be wacky. <laughs> uh, I don't know if there's anything wacky or anything additional to this. Um, I mean, I, as, as I mentioned before, yeah, I mean, the, the only thing that I wish that there was more of this was uh, just, to, you know, the receptiveness to going and having a little bit more of, uh, you know, flexibility, whether it's like hybrid or, you know, having uh, the option of both online and in person uh, for uh, the institutions. But again, I think the pressure is there because, uh, you know, the, 
Uh, and again, I, I would say what we've been doing for the last two years is still is not complete online delivery because it just takes, I mean, we've basically been kind of flying by the, the seat of our pants, just trying to survive. And, uh, you know, maybe uh, even like what you're talking about, like having this push to go and have um, professors, instructors going and having to develop their own materials probably that's where the value add is going to come and whether that's digital or, you know, in person having exercises, right. Uh, again, that's something that um, really, I, I would say to you, uh, Eric, uh, I mean, one, uh, one thing that I read years ago when I did my MBA, um, there was uh, this talk about the experience economy and education is ripe for that. Right. I mean, really what distinguishes, uh, a transformational experience for a student and it would really come down to you know uh, how can you make it the best experience for the student in the class and this is where some people excel and they have uh, awesome ways of engaging uh, the students whether it's from a pedagogical approach or maybe they're just awesome in terms of uh, presentation and lecturing right so We could also have a bonus one, um, which may be useful to us, which is that we'll see, this can be our bonus if we get it right, which is that we might see more academics um, monetizing their existing course content. That's a, that's a good point. Pending no conflict of interest contracts or anything that they have to sign. Well, yeah, I don't know how that works if you're like full time. I mean, luckily I'm not. I guess there's pros and cons. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, as far as I know, anything that I create is my own intellectual property. Uh, but yeah. I, I guess I'm sure that's different if you're full time. We'll find out. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see how it works. It's a good bonus one. I didn't know if we should include it as a number, but we have seven, eight with the bonus. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else that you want to mention before we wrap it up today? I think I'm good. You're good? Okay. Well, we'll revise this list. We'll put it in our show notes and we'll revisit it, I guess, in early 2023. Awesome. Take care. Okay. Take care. Thanks. You can learn more about EdTech Examined by going to our website, edtechexamined.com. There, you'll find ways to subscribe, as well as host information, our social media accounts, and our blog posts. Our blog posts are also published through Medium on the EdTech Examined publication. You can contact EdTech Examined by emailing us at hey at edtechexamined.com. If you have an EdTech question you'd like us to answer on a future episode, you can email us or reach us through Twitter using the hashtag EdTechOfficeHours. You can find EdTechExamined on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at EdTechExamined, and we also have a LinkedIn page you can follow. Until next time. And I'm Chris Hall, the audio producer for EdTechExamined. You can get in touch with me and contact me through all of my social media at my website, which is chrishong.ca. That's C-H-R-I-S-H-O-A-N-G dot C-A.